Hello, and welcome to Shaping the Future, a show dedicated to explaining both Canada's political systems and the political news in a simplified way, in hopes of getting more young people to vote. I'm your host, Hayden Fougere. On the pod today, the official opposition accuses the federal government of a cover-up, while Canada and China exchange slaps on the wrist. The Supreme Court rules in favor of the Liberals' carbon tax, while the Conservatives argue if climate change even exists. And in the classroom, we're going to be talking all things Senate, and to help us break it down, I sit down with Senator Kim Pate, as she helps break down her role in the Senate and all the good she thinks that she can do from the inside. So the official opposition has accused the federal government of a cover-up after Trudeau's government declined to send his director of policy, Rick Thesis, to the House of Commons Ethics Committee. Instead, they decided to send House Leader Pablo Rodriguez. To understand why this is happening, I think it's important to understand why these hearings are happening in the first place. Back at the beginning of the pandemic, the Liberals decided to set up a program where they would, essentially, pay young people to volunteer called the Canada Student Service Grant. Students would get $1,000 paid for every 100 hours of volunteering they did, up to a total of $5,000. That wasn't the issue. Frankly, the Conservatives had been on board up until this point. The idea of getting young people out and giving back to their community while paying them sounded fantastic to the Conservatives. The issue arose when the Liberal government decided to choose the organization that would administer the program through a no-bid process, which means no other organization besides the We Charity was even considered. The Wheat Charity was selected to be in charge of everything from paying the students to deciding what qualified as a volunteer position. This immediately drew condemnation from the Conservatives as they knew the significant history that existed between the Trudeau family and the Wheat Charity. And in fact, a number of other groups claimed that the Wheat Charity wasn't the only group capable of administering the program. Justin Trudeau and his government quickly came to the defense of the Wheat Charity, though, claiming that they were the only ones who were going to be able to administer a program like this on the immense scale that was going to be required. After an intense back and forth between the government and the official opposition, an official investigation was started on July 3rd, 2020, and on that same day, the government and the Wheat Charity decided to part ways. And after lasting from April 22nd to July 3rd, the program was officially dead. The troubles didn't end there for the Prime Minister, however, as is obvious by my continued to talk about it. The issue of the Wheat Charity was then put to the Finance Committee, where a group of MPs decided, after hearing from the brothers in charge of the Wheat Charity, to call the Prime Minister and his Chief of Staff. After some speculation he wouldn't attend, Justin Trudeau showed up to the Finance Committee, and he had some pretty heated exchanges with the former Conservative finance critic, Pierre Polyev. Once the Finance Committee had had their fun with this issue, it was then passed along to the Ethics Committee, who are currently calling witnesses and hearing testimony. They wanted to hear from Justin Trudeau's Director of Policy. He would have been the man who had direct knowledge of the issue. But instead, they got the House Leader, who has admitted he had no direct knowledge of the Weed Charity deal. Well, now that you're all cut up, I think it's time for some speculation. I think the Conservatives plan to keep this issue alive for as long as they can. We've been hearing rumors for months now about the chance of an election, either in the summer or the fall. I expect you're going to continue to hear about this issue, either until Justin Trudeau steps down, or he goes to visit the Governor General to call an election. I think it's a pretty good move on the part of the Conservatives to keep this issue alive, because they can use it as a defining issue. Either vote for the government, who wants to pay their friends, or vote for us, kind of thing. And frankly, I think they need to do something to make up for their rather stagnant poll numbers. Ever since the beginning of the pandemic, the Liberals have held a commanding lead. Not only continues to go up as they continue their vaccine rollout, the Liberals currently leave the Conservatives with 35.4% of Canadians saying they would rather a Liberal government to 29.7% who say they want a Conservative. With these numbers, I would expect Justin Trudeau and his Liberals will call an election as soon as the vaccine rollout is at a sufficient level. This will allow them to capitalize on the good polling numbers and hopefully turn their minority into a majority, which, judging on the polling, is fairly likely. 
So Canada and China have exchanged some slaps on the wrist in the form of sanctions. On March 22nd, Canada, along with the United States, United Kingdom, and the European Union, placed sanctions on four high-ranking officials in China's western province of Xinjiang, where there have been allegations of human rights violations against China's Uyghur Muslim population, including forced labor, torture, and forced sterilization. These sanctions came exactly one month after the House of Commons passed a resolution calling China's treatment of the Uyghur Muslims a genocide. Then, on March 27th, China imposed sanctions on groups and individuals within Canada and the United States, including Conservative MP Michael Chong. Now, while that all sounds very official, I think it's important to explain what all this means and what it means for you. Sanctions are normally something people hear in the context of nation against nation, but they can also be used to stop people from interacting with an individual or a company. In the case of MP Michael Chong, he's no longer allowed to go to Hong Kong or mainland China. And he's not allowed to do business with anyone in Hong Kong or mainland China. Same goes for the individuals sanctioned by the Canadian government. They aren't allowed to visit Canada or do business with anyone within Canada. And Canadians aren't allowed to do business with them. While these sanctions don't affect many people, unless you actively do business with these four individuals' names and the sanctions, they are more of a symbolic step. A sort of public show of unity between Canada, the United States, and the European Union. The Canadian government has been careful to call the treatment of the Uyghur population in China anything but a genocide, and many people have been trying to figure out why, including Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, who continues to call on the federal government, saying, While Conservatives are encouraged that the Trudeau government is finally working with our allies and imposing sanctions on officials responsible for human rights violations, the Trudeau government still refuses to call the atrocities committed against the Uyghurs a genocide. Now, while I'm no political insider, I think the reason Canada has delayed this long in calling what's happening a genocide is due to Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, the two Canadians detained in Chinese prison. I think Justin Trudeau is attempting to avoid upsetting the Chinese any more than he already has by detaining Meng Wanzhou until the trial of the two Michaels is over. The Supreme Court has ruled that the carbon tax implemented by Justin Trudeau and his liberals is now constitutional. Now, that doesn't change much. The only thing it really changes is for the provinces of Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, Ontario, Manitoba. They didn't have their own carbon tax to begin with, so they had the federal carbon tax placed on them. All those provinces are led by conservative premiers, and those premiers argued the federal government was overstepping their boundaries by imposing this tax on them, so they took them to court. With this ruling, this means that all those provinces have to continue to follow the federally mandated tax, or they can come up with their own. There has been quite a bit of negative reaction to this carbon tax, so I figured I'd break it down for you. The carbon tax you see everybody complaining about is the federally mandated tax. These taxes on things like fuels, for example, will raise the price of the pump. However, families will get the extra cash they spend back, sometimes up to 70% more than what they paid. So you might be asking, if they're going to repay us, why charge in the first place? I think this clip of Justin Trudeau explains it pretty good, so I'll let him take it away. It is common sense that if you put a price on something you don't want, pollution, people will pollute less. And if there are costs associated with for, for average families, we will more than compensate those families for those costs. Now, it's important to remember, this is only the provinces that decided not to create their own program. Here in Nova Scotia, for example, we have a cap-and-trade system, which is significantly different to the federal carbon tax, and a lot cheaper. Here in Nova Scotia, each company is given a set amount of greenhouse gas units that they can produce. That's the cap part. If they go over the allotment, they can buy extra units from a company that doesn't produce as much. That's the trade. The program incentivizes companies to produce significantly under the cap, allowing them to sell off the extra for some more money. Each year, the Nova Scotian government reduces the greenhouse gas units a company gets, and so companies have to work to reduce their emissions. 
The cap and trade program still raises prices at the pumps, but only by one cent per liter for the past four years it's been active, whereas the federal government's program would have added 11 cents. So if you bring all this back to the ruling of it being constitutional, it really doesn't affect you all that much if you don't live in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Ontario, or New Brunswick. Now, granted, some people say it's a dangerous precedent for government overreach, but I think those people are the ones overreaching. Sticking with climate change, at the last conservative convention, they rejected adding a line to the policy book that read climate change is real and the conservative party is willing to act. Now that's a pretty big deal, so let's break it down. A policy book is essentially all the things that the conservatives will run on in the next election. They have sections on how they plan to balance the budget in the next 10 years, a whole bunch of stuff about COVID, but nothing on the environment as of yet. And that's because at the convention, which is when all the conservatives from across the country send representatives to vote and propose things to be included in the platform, they voted not to include that line. Aaron O'Toole insists that his conservatives will have a climate plan, though some people aren't as convinced. I got the chance to speak to Sean Fraser, Member of Parliament for Central Nova, and also the Parliamentary Secretary to the Deputy Prime Minister, and the Minister and Associate Ministers of Finance, and the Minister for Middle Class Prosperity, for an upcoming episode of Shaping the Future. During that conversation, I asked him about his thoughts, and I felt it was appropriate to include it here. So here's a sneak peek of my conversation with Sean Fraser. So Aaron O'Toole has said uh, that his conservatives will have a national plan to fight uh, climate change, but members of his own party clearly think different. Uh, as they shot down a proposal to include the line, climate change is real, and the Conservative Party is, is willing to act. Uh, what message do you think this sends uh, Canadians about the Conservative stance on the issue? Look, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, I was on the environment portfolio before the last election, and they said, we'll have a plan, we'll have a plan, we'll have a plan. It, it was almost a year, I believe, before they produced anything, and their plan was largely... Um, uh, subscribed to a uh, 1980s uh, neoliberal economic agenda uh, that tried to promote the development of, of uh, technologies that don't yet exist um, and um, frankly um, wouldn't have achieved uh, anywhere near what we need to if we're going to avoid the worst consequences of climate change. Um, I saw the vote with a, the at the Conservative Policy Convention uh, showing 54% of people disagreed with the statement that uh, climate change is real and the Conservative Party, Party is willing to act. Um, one of the things that troubles me, and, and even Aaron O'Toole has um, done his best to sort of combat and say, look, that might be my membership's position, but I, I have a different view. And I think it's important that he said that. Uh, but the thing that really worries me is in the next breath, uh, he, he made a comment to the effect of, uh, we, we'll fight climate change, but we have to get the economy back on track first. And what really, really troubles me is there seems to not be an appreciation with my conservative colleagues. And there are some exceptions to this rule. Michael Chong, for example, gets it. Uh, but there are uh, the mainstream view within their party amongst people who believe climate change is real seems to ignore the fact that what's good for our environment is also good for our economy. Now, while some people claim it's not a massive deal to have a plan on climate change right now, I do. Not just for environmental sake, but for the sake of the election. Liberals run in a very consistent base of young voters. They turn out. And they turn out in droves for things like environmental policy. Now, the conservatives run on a base of older voters. 
But if they want to beat Justin Trudeau and his liberals in this next coming election, they're going to have to broaden that base and they can't afford to be labeled as climate change deniers. When we come back, we'll head into the classroom to learn about the Senate. And then my conversation with Senator Kim Pate. Don't go away. Welcome to the classroom. Today, we're going to be covering the Senate. The Senate, first established in 1867, is often referred to as the House of Sober Second Thought. The Senate provides a place to review and correct bills. They basically look them over, and if they don't think they're good enough, they can add what's called amendments and send it back to the House of Commons. Or, if they think it's good enough, they can essentially say yes, and the bill receives royal assent shortly thereafter. In order for a bill to become law, there's a few avenues it could take. First, it could be introduced in the House of Commons. Bills introduced in the House of Commons always begin with the letter C, followed by a string of numbers. The bill must pass through a first and second reading before it's referred to a committee, where they analyze the bill further and hear from people directly affected. Once the bill passes in committee, it then comes back to the House of Commons for a third reading before being passed up to the Senate, where it follows a very similar process. Once it passes the Senate, it becomes law and receives royal assent. The other option to get a bill to become law is for it to start in the Senate. All bills that begin in the Senate start with an S and a string of numbers. They follow the same steps as a bill that begins in the House. Here now, to teach us about the Senate, is Senator Kim Pate. Senator Pate graduated from Dalhousie Law School in 1984 with an Honors in Clinical Law program and has completed postgraduate work in the area of forensic mental health. She was the Executive Director of the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies. She served as the Executive Director from January 1992 until her appointment to the Senate in November of 2016. Thank you again for, for joining me today. Uh, um, so you have a very long history of advocacy before you were appointed to the Senate. Um, most notably, you're a director of the Elizabeth Fry Societies for 24 years. Uh, could you kind of explain how these experiences led to you being appointed to the Senate? Uh, sure. So um, you're in Halifax, right? Well, I, I'm pleased to join you from the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabek, but I actually uh, was at law school at Dalhousie University and started going into prisons just before that when I was at UVic in the undergrad, my undergrad program. Um, so I, I never intended to be doing this work. I thought I would be doing corporate commercial or something. Uh, I was a working class kid who uh, went to law school basically to make money. And then along the way, um, as you see some of the injustices that so many of the injustices that exist, um, I became more interested in these issues. So I worked first, um, left, after I left the law firm, I worked with a number of community groups, volunteering as well as in paid work, uh, including the John Howard Society, both at a, a local level and nationally, and then um, as for almost 25 years with Elizabeth Fry. So I worked with young people, with men and, and women, who were amongst the most marginalized, victimized, criminalized, and institutionalized. And then um, in the midst of that work, I was planning to leave the national job anyway. Uh, I had said that if I was still in the job when I reached my 25th anniversary that I would leave. I'd given notice about six years um, previous and said that really I wanted um, you know, someone uh, young, ideally someone racialized because that's who's overrepresented in our prisons. Uh, to come in and take over the job and uh, and then in the midst of all that people started approaching me after uh, the prime minister he wasn't the prime minister yet but as he started talking about a more independent senate and then when he became the prime minister in 2015 
Justin Trudeau um, developed a, a process of people being nominated and then applying to uh, to positions in the Senate. And a number of people, different groups of people recommended and urged and um, and ultimately nominated me. And uh, I was I was honored, uh, humbled, but never thought it would happen. And then when I got the call, um, it, it the prime minister indicated it was the kind of um, activism and leadership that I had been engaged in in the community that uh, they wanted to see in the Senate. So I took that seriously and um, figure that I better keep doing it then. And so uh, in the Senate, I've been involved with um, a number of initiatives, including um, long, you know, for the long term, looking at how we actually breathe life into our charter of rights and freedoms so that all people in this country have access to everything from clean water, uh, sustainable and, um, you know, energy to food supplies, adequate food and, and good food um, quality, as well as housing, uh, economic stability, uh, education. And so I think Canada is a rich country in terms of human and natural resources. And so there's no excuse for everybody in this country not to be fed, clothed, housed and educated. And uh, in addition, so, you know, guaranteed livable income, childcare, healthcare, dental care, pharma care are all part of that, all within the sustainable development goals, which include, of course, in making sure we take care of our environment and, and the climate and the planets. And so, uh, so that's the long term. And in the short term, I have continued to go into the prisons until the pandemic. And about a third of our, my colleagues have also gone into the prison and we had started taking members of parliament in as well before the pandemic hit, uh, because many people don't know in this country that judges, members of parliament and senators all have a right of access to our federal penitentiaries. And so many of my colleagues were concerned about the overuse of um, isolation, segregation, solitary confinement. So we're going in. And then I also have two private bills uh, in the works, one to allow convictions, uh, criminal convictions to expire rather than people have to spend hundreds and thousands of dollars to try and get record suspensions. And another one to allow judges the discretion to not impose mandatory minimum penalties because over the last 20, 30 years, we've seen, we've gone from about 10 to over 70 mandatory minimum penalties. And that's contributed to the mass incarceration of indigenous and black people, people of African descent in this country. So those are some of the things I've been working on and, and why I uh, agreed to go to the Senate when I was, why I agreed to have my name stand when I was first approached and why I agreed to go when, when I was called. So how long of a process is it from when the, like, you know, you first find out that people nominated you and, and wanted you to go to the Senate to actually taking your seat in the, in the Senate chamber? Well, in my case, it was just under a year. Um, I was approached in the fall of uh, 2015, but the process didn't start until the new year 2016. And I, I can't remember exactly which day everything went in, but uh, it was sometime in the um, the winter, late winter, I think it was that everything went in and then I was called um, late October and I was actually appointed uh, into the Senate on my birthday, my 57th birthday. And if I don't cark it or quit before, I'll be kicked out on my 75th. So November 10th was the day that I, um, that my commission started and I was actually sworn in in the chamber and had the ceremony on November 15th, but the 10th was the day that the commission was signed. So, yeah. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. 
So could you uh, could you kind of explain what your duties are in the Senate for some people who might not uh, be aware? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I mean, our responsibility is, uh, there are a few, we're in, we're the second, or the, the it's called the second um, House of Parliament in terms of being the end called the Chamber of Sober Second Thought. And so the, the idea is that we're supposed to be looking at the long-term interests of Canada. Uh, we're supposed to be looking out for in particular minority interests and we're appointed from regions. So we, we represent also the regions we come from. So because I have lived in Ontario, I've lived in um, much of the country except up north. I've lived in, I was born in Quebec. I've lived in uh, BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, and my dad has roots in PEI. Uh, and so, but I was appointed from Ontario. And so I'm supposed to look at these interests, but because of that experience and because I had been working nationally, for uh, over 25 years, including the John Howard Society, uh, before I was appointed, I think of my responsibility as being nationwide. And in particular, um, the issues that elected officials often don't, even if they're interested, and many are um, in long-term issues, they often don't have the same ability to work on them because they're often, you know, they're working on issues that um, the electorate, you know, they're trying to get elected. And so they're working on short-term issues. So some of the issues we're working on, like guaranteed livable income, like economic redistribution, like long-term um, uh, addressing poverty, those are issues that will take longer than a four-year election cycle. And so those are part of our um, obligations. On a day-to-day -day basis, we, these positions were actually originally considered part-time jobs. So the salaries are, um, are, I don't think they're quite half, but they're, you know, they're less than say a member of parliament because the ex expectation was that many people would still be doing other jobs. Now that was at a time when it was predominantly as one of my Maori uh, friends would say, male pale stale. And so it was predominantly wealthy white men who had these positions, many of them lawyers. So it was, uh, you know, basically it was a job that didn't anticipate uh, necessarily people spending full time doing it, but many of us do. Um, I certainly resigned a, a re immediately once I received this position. I can, and I, um, I continue in some volunteer capacities, but my work really is ensuring that we, you know, we look at the legislation that the House of Commons has passed and try and pr improve it. So one bill we're looking at right now, for instance, is um, uh, the bill to uh, educate judges about sexual assault law. We just finished the medical assistance and dying bill and soon we'll be dealing with um, the over and mass incarceration and the attempts in Bill C-22 the government is making to try and reduce the number of uh, Indigenous and people of African descent in, in jails and so and in the criminal legal system. So on a day-to-day -day basis, if we're not sitting in the Senate, we may be in committees uh, as well. I, you know, I'll often speak on Friday night. I was speaking to the graduating class of uh, the law school here at University and of Ottawa. All of this is virtual right now. And um, I, last weekend I was doing a model parliament for one of the universities. And so um, it's really the type of work that, you know, I think it's a responsibility to also connect with folks in the community. And so um, I do things on social media as well. I'm, I'm old, so I'm a bit of a dinosaur, not that, you know, not that adept to it and a bit of a techno twit. So, but try to keep on top of it. So 
uh, yeah, it's basically I see our role as uh, public education, responding to the public, but also uh, trying to improve the legislation the government is bringing. And for those who don't know, if you want to know how you can tell whether a bill, a law, uh, so a, the bill, a bill is what a law is called before it's a law. If a bill has originated in the Senate or the House of Commons, it's, if it starts with a C, it started in the House of Commons. If it starts with an S, it started in the Senate. And if it's over a hundred, then it means it was, uh, and usually it's two or 300, it means it was a private bill, but it was started by an individual MP if it's a C bill and by a Senator if it's an S bill. So for instance, the two bills that I have sponsored, S207 and S208, that would tell you that it's a private bill started in the Senate. So that means it has to go through first, second, and third reading in the Senate it has to be looked at by a committee and then go to the House of Commons and go through the same process before it can become law. So every law has to go through those processes before it can be um, can become law. And that's our show for today. Thank you very much for listening to the first episode of Shaping the Future. And thank you very much to Senator Kim Pate, who took the time out of her Sunday to speak to me. Be sure to tune in next week to hear the full conversation I have with Sean Fraser about what it's like to be a parliamentary secretary and how he juggles his duties as an MP with those of a parliamentary secretary. Until next time, I'm Hayden Fougere. <laughs>